0: Welcome to episode 11 of MADE, the podcast about purpose-driven design, making, and manufacturing. Today we're going to be talking about architects gone rogue. Let's continue our conversation. Hi everyone, welcome back to MADE, the podcast about Design purpose driven design making and manufacturing. Uh with me always is and back. This week is Ray Pena. How you doing? Claudia Berrigan.
1: Hello.
0: And I am Jose Valcarcel. Um welcome everybody. Welcome back Ray. Thanks. How was the occasion?
2: Well it's good to be back, I'll just say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's not do any Florida bashing.
2: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. We're gonna keep that down to a minimum. It was yeah. very hot, my
0: goodness. Oh I can only imagine. Uh June in Florida. (laughs) Um, Oh, then it rains every
2: day. You don't have a a daily rain. Oh, absolutely.
1: (laughs) You
0: guys couldn't help yourself. Yeah, no, we will let it go. We'll let it go. Um, How How are you doing otherwise? Oh,
1: pretty good. Pretty
0: good. Good, good. Yeah, no, we've been doing pretty good here as well. We've got a a full house of pets. We we're pet sitting for two friends, so we have a cat and a dog. So if you hear a strange bark, because our dog doesn't bark, our dog is like mute almost. So if you hear a bark throughout the show, that's because it's the, the new dog, the loner dog, as I call him.
1: We basically have
0: a kennel now. Yeah. Yeah. But um, let's get right to our show because we have a good main topic that Ray came up with about architects going rogue. But before we get to that, let's uh um, let's cover some news. <laughs> Alright, so our first news story is about the world's first 3D printed office building by Gensler. Um, did you guys get a chance to look at this and, yep, and sure see, did. see this design?
2: Yeah, I, I, uh, I took a look at that. <laughs> yeah. I have my ideas, I'll let you guys go first.
0: <laughs> what do you think about it, Claudia? Well, I, I was I'll gonna th- do that. I was gonna <laughs> All right, well, I'll start first. Um, I don't have a problem starting first. Um, f- it was funny for me because the, the the image that showed up before I clicked on the article showed this sort of high rising towers, and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> and then when I clicked on the image, it's like you know this one story office building in quotation marks, if you will. Um, so I'm not, you know. I'm not necessarily impressed by the design but that's neither here nor there to me I think one the fact that it's done in um in pff, I don't know why the the word escapes me in Dubai yeah which I, l- I love Dubai I I, I want to go to Dubai I don't love Dubai I really want to go to Dubai but it's you know it's easy to do in Dubai because Dubai does so many things that they're doing like islands in the shape of the United States and, and stuff like that mm-hmm. um but then I look at this design and I'm wondering how they 3D printed this thing, because how did the roofs get supported for the 3D printer to do that's it? A, that's a good question, right? Because yeah. for yeah, anybody that's done 3D printing, you know that it can't can't print without anything below it; it'll collapse, or you have to put supports, so and then you take off. So I don't know how they did this. Well, and when you when you think about it being concrete, it, it's right
2: to
3: ask
0: that question a little bit a little bit harder mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so I wonder if this is 3d printing in name where it's an additive um, construction which I know a lot of people consider that 3d printing even though it's not the I hate to use the word conventional because you bring such a new thing but the conventional 3d printing is this nozzle moving back and forth l- putting layers on top of the other again an additive mode of making something yeah um so I have my questions on this but I guess they get credit for the the first one so <laughs> when of you guys gotta go now
1: well what I mean what they say is that it was fabricated using a 20 foot tall by 100 foot long by 20 foot wide 3D printer from I think it's Winsun Global in mm-hmm. Shanghai and it was shipped to Dubai to Dubai and it was assembled then um, it was then assembled that's that's where they lost me because uh, again I just I the, the idea and again could, because it's Dubai you can do whatever you want to do because mm-hmm. it's just money you know, and it's, it's just, just sun you know mm-hmm. it's just like it's just hot so mm-hmm. therefore you could just do whatever it's if it like the Florida matter. of the world <laughs> yes exactly so therefore it doesn't really matter and you know like basically any 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 large architecture firm major architecture firm will want to do something over there because you just can't and it mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you're killing a lot of people while, while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. But it's the fact that you're, I mean, it takes about eight-hour plane ride. It's about 4,000 miles to just Is it from travel China to Dubai, from sh- mm-hmm. Shanghai to Dubai. Mm-hmm. You know, just to do that. If they actually did this, mm-hmm. you know, and you would do this all the time. Like, to me, it's like, why wouldn't you want to process that in Dubai? And to me, like, the other thing is, if you're going to do this as a whole, hopefully they're thinking that, you know, like, the manufacturing of these 3D printing printed um, buildings will happen in the country in the place. itself.
2: Right.
1: So, I, I, you know, that's where they lost me completely. What do you
2: think, Ray? Well, here's <laughs> here's my thing. Um, this, uh, this article came out uh, June of, 1st uh, uh, of June of this year, Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of the, one of the issues that I have is that there have been 3D printed uh, buildings and houses in particular in China for the past four to five years. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they make it sound like, oh, this is the first. It is the first office building. But mm-hmm. the Chinese have been printing uh, uh, houses uh, in China for the past four or five years, and they've been doing a very good job at it. Now, they're not as beautifully designed. I, I, as far as design is concerned, I kind of like the whole pod uh, look to it. I, I think it's kind of interesting. It kind of reminds me like seven, the you know 70s idea of futuristic architecture would be. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a retro futurist kind of look at the at the thing. Um, but I, I'm with you both on this. My th- the one thing they didn't put on here is how much it cost. and. The, the thing is the fact that it's in Dubai, the actual cost is, uh, is completely irrelevant. This could be fifty million dollars and it wouldn't have mattered. Um, you right. know the, the machine uh, that 3d print that 3D printing uh, robot for concrete is probably it's probably close to a million dollars for that robot mm-hmm. uh, that 3D printer. Uh, to answer your question about the roof and it's, it's really disappointing that they didn't have any in progress uh, photographs. Right because you would think with the size of that 3D printer they would be doing in situ but you don't know that for for a fact uh... the model in china they were doing slices of the building mm-hmm. but they were doing them horizontally they would let them cure they would make them maybe um, a foot and a half thick maybe two feet thick they would let it cure and they go print another one and when it was cured they'd stand it up right. and that's how you would get the roof structure out of it mm-hmm. but looking at this you don't really know if it was Printed in slices or not, it, I think that probably it was, uh, but or it could have been printed in situ if they had some kind of support structure, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But without those in progress photographs, you don't really know. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, the whole idea of, of having a three D printed building is that you could do it uh, cost effectively, efficiently, and, w- and we don't. <laughs> I don't think they did that here. Um, but it. it what so those are the kind of things that rub me bit raw about that which is basically everything about the project <laughs> 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 all
0: right well, let me ask these questions yeah. and let's see what you guys answer so if it wasn't done on site does it count as being 3d printed to you
2: i think it does it's just okay. not on site
0: all right well, what's the difference between this and say a pre-manufactured house
2: the fact that it's 3d printed
0: but I mean, if you're doing that's it, in, it. A f- in a factory <laughs> you're i mean you could be doing a 3 d printer. but you might as well make some other way of it. You could make a mold or whatever yeah, it doesn't yeah. there's no advantage to the three d printer other than the fact that you're saying i'm 3D printing it
2: yeah, that's the only thing and and without knowing if it was done on site or not because they they don't mention that in the, uh, right in the article and there's no photographs mm-hmm. the, it's a you bring up a very valid point.
0: Yeah, to me, if they're doing it on-site, then where, what, what is the advantage of the 3D printing? So, that, that's the first part of it. And, and the way the article phrased, it's kind of hard to tell if they shipped the 3D printer to Dubai, or if they shipped the thing and assembled the whole thing in Dubai. The, the whole office building. So, um, the other part that I... And I know you mentioned you somewhat like the the design of it. I guess, when, as we're moving... You know, we've been sort of building the same way for so long. You know, it, it we sort of the post and lintel, and everything is a bearing construction type of way. As you start to build using 3D printer, I would love for the look of the building to sort of reflect that a little bit. Yeah. You know, and this doesn't necessarily do that. I mean, maybe they're trying to move in that direction, but this does look like a, con- a like a concrete structure.
2: Yeah, it does.
0: So I don't know. I, I guess that's the other issue I take with it, and I don't have the answer of what it should look like because it's 3D printed. You know, I'm not saying you should see the lines necessarily of the 3D print, but I don't know. They're... they're every construction method or material that you use sort of leaves its mark on the exterior of the building, whether you're using forms or using brick or whatever, this doesn't seem to do that. Mm-hmm.
2: And you know what, looking at these photographs, if you if you look at it, you see how the, the bottom edges of the building actually are radius down, mm-hmm. and kind of disappear without yeah. a, a clear connection to the ground. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes me think that these were these were printed in slices and then and brought, brought here. Yeah,
3: yeah. That's
1: what they say. I mean, one thing that I want to say though that about the the China and that they've been doing, I would love to like for us to do a a um a segment on three three D printing in China. Okay, that'd be really interesting to see. Um, just because I've done some w- I've done work in in China because you know the firm that I worked for had. Many offices over there, like at least three offices over there, and they they have done established work over there and one of the important things to keep in mind about construction in China is that the lifespan of buildings are basically between ten and twenty years
3: mm-hmm.
1: so in in because that's how poor construction is over there, and that's the intent of construction over there as well. Mm-hmm. so it's interesting that you know like they're doing three d 3D homes, 3D printed homes, everything else, because to me, like, that's what you should have been doing all of this time. Because that's what you were doing anyways. It just, it's a different technology. Mm-hmm. Most of the building that you have been doing here has been so temporary, as a as a whole. Not saying that 3D printing is temporary, but the fact that you would do it in such a way is, it really takes away from the idea of dwelling, mm-hmm. and you know, housing or Building or a dwelling
3: mm-hmm.
1: as a basic right hmm. for people, right? So it's an interesting. I, I just th- I would love to. Uh, I'll I'll find some articles about that because that's yes. yeah, that, it's that's like that's an interesting right. topic,
0: something that we can talk about. something mm-hmm. we can look at or some research that needs to be done. Then yeah,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: we're not huge in research. <laughs> so all right, well, cool. So I think we're also somewhat on the same page when it comes to that. Uh, to that design or that particular project. So Let's uh, go on to the next story which is Ikea's insight on the future of the home. Um, I didn't know this until I saw this article but I guess Ikea puts out a report okay. every year um, a home report is what they call it um, that I guess looks looks at different factors from interviews they've done to like I guess items that sell and observations in their stores um, and they put out this report. So, I have some thoughts about this, but what do you guys think of, of what IKEA has to say?
1: It's almost like IKEA policy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: This
1: is so cool.
2: Well, it seems to me, uh, one, I'm not sure what, what the exact function of this report is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who are they intending this for? I don't think it's for their customers. Um, but what it what it seems to me to be is almost a a manual if you are going to uh, have ideas for IKEA to sell your product mm-hmm. a, you you should read this and see how it's gonna fit into this model because mm-hmm. uh, that's what it seems to me is almost a blueprint this is how things are going The here's the model that we're looking at for the next year or so uh, y- you know it, this is how it would fit in now. It's interesting that they pointed out something we've all kind of figured out, how the digital devices are affecting how we are living at home.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't think I needed a report to tell me that. but.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think, uh, like, I, I'll tell you this. I haven't read the whole report, and maybe yeah. I don't know if uh, maybe I'll read it and we can talk about whether that's a, that's a main topic at some point or not. I doubt it. When I read this quote from it, it says, this is from the report, it seems our requirements of our home can be summed up like this it has to be comfortable it has to be safe and it has to provide familiarity relationships love and belonging have to be balanced with room for privacy relaxation and recovery and we like our homes to be personal and express who we are like yeah home report 2016 no shit yeah <laughs> like what, thank you captain obvious yeah like what the hell <laughs> <was that? laughs> like why do you need to do the report and is that in the report every year yeah <laughs> i i don't know it it came off to me as a marketing ploy by IKEA. But now, this, was the, this was this the third time before. they've done this. Yeah, it's the third year of it. But as I never heard of it, I guess it's hard for me to say it's a marketing ploy because you know I I go to IKEA a lot. I there's certain things I enjoy about IKEA and there's certain things I enjoy about hacking about their furniture and using pieces to make other stuff. But I never heard of this report, so I don't know. I don't know what the purpose of it is.
1: So I, I read the report a little bit more, just mm-hmm. because I'm that kind of a person. I mm-hmm. was like, "Oh, that's a report. Let's read it." Um, it just it seems like it's more of a trend report, mm-hmm. and because it's you know it's looking at trends, it's both for uh, their designers, their business staff, both in IKEA. And remember, IKEA is not just you know it's it's throughout the, the world, mm-hmm. right? So it could be read by everybody. All of the different businesses. Right. So,
0: business so you think it's more like oh, like an internal report?
1: No, but it's uh, because it's trends. Mm-hmm. They also are able to direct it towards their market, to, to, towards their audience, right? The, to the, the consumer. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. and they theref- therefore tell the consumer what the trend is and what they need to be trendy about.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> In a way, this mm-hmm. is another way of like. So it's like of marketing. Thing. I, yeah. So mm-hmm. it it could be both. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's the fact that it has chapters, even right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting thing. I I definitely agree with both of you that it's a very a duh type of <laughs> type of findings. I really what's really interesting is the information about millennials mm-hmm. that I found here that that they that they you know their findings.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I mean, I I just don't know what to say about these things anymore because while. I I root for millennials all the time, and I think they're great.
0: You might be the only one, but okay, continue. Uh,
1: <laughs> because you have to work with them, you know. You have to mm. like deal with that. However, you have to you like you have to work with them, and then you embrace them for what they do. But at the same time, it's like this is what they do. It's actually kind of true, mm. you know. Like what is it, fifty three to forty eight percent of millennials, and they broke it down to those two different twenty four twenty three to. 30 and you know 16 to 22 so they're all millennials uh, will give up their sense of smell if it meant they could keep one of their electronic gadgets like was that even a question that you asked someone like and and I'm sure they answer that that way
0: Maybe why is that helpful <laughs> and why is that
1: helpful yeah. and it's just it's so crazy I guess the, uh, the best assessment about the entire thing and this is in the article is that we are. Um, oh, and this was actually in their summary, in the actual report summary, is that uh, we are moving from appreciating things for their own sake to valuing the experiences they bring. In this new age, the things that are important to us are the ones that enable us to do what we love. Mm-hmm. So what they're saying is that you know, like the new trend for IKEA you know, for all of us that we're you doing is that we appreciate not just having things for the sake of having them, but because of what we can do with them. And as someone who just has had like a larger acquired thanks to my great husband, mm. a larger kitchen, mm. you know, I really value my the ability to cook in that big kitchen, you know, and be able to actually cut vegetables and do things in that kitchen that I couldn't do before and like really have that relationship with food that I was that I didn't have before. So I think that's an interesting thing because mm-hmm. I, I can appreciate that more than having you know a um, a new wave oven <laughs> you know or like something really quick that I can just put food in there and forget about what I'm eating. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I agree with that. <laughs> yeah, um, I
0: mean I can agree with that too. What do you what do you have to say about it,
2: Ray? Well, the only thing I want to point out is that this is June 26, 2016, and uh, I am shocked that that Claudia would give you so much credit. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm gonna have to write this date down because I this is I gotta say a new
0: experience for me. Yeah, no, me too. I, <laughs> I I I didn't I skipped right past it when she said that, but yeah, no. I, <laughs> yeah.
3: Thank I, you, Ray. Thank you.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> well, that's all I need to take away from that. Yeah, thank you, it. IKEA.
2: <laughs> yeah, I I just couldn't understand the whole idea. Of and I, yeah. I think that uh, you hit it on the head. I think this was maybe intended for internal distribution, and they said, you know what? What the heck? Let's just make it for everybody.
0: Yeah. I hey, he is making some puzzling decisions for me lately. Um, yeah. I think I thought they have a, a food truck somewhere now. <laughs> it's come, they, they're oh gonna have a food God. truck in Chicago that sells meatballs.
2: Rancid Swedish meatballs. That's one. Yeah. <laughs> that's what everybody wants. <laughs>
0: Um, and with that, let's move on, oh, that, that, we're going to move on to our main topic. <laughs> let's get to our main topic, and uh, our main topic is Architects Gone Rogue. Ray, why don't you tell us, you, this was a topic that you had come up with, why don't you tell us a little bit about what we're going to talk about?
2: Uh, sure, this, uh, this topic is an uh, um, uh, article uh, brought to us by Architectizer. Uh, written by Linda Bennett. It's an interesting, I found it interesting uh, because uh, there's a lot of people that I've interacted with that over the years that were architects are now doing something else. Uh, and in fact, while I was in architecture school, we took a tour of the jail uh, for a project we were doing. And the, uh, the officer working the jail, once we told him we were the, with the School of Architecture, said, Oh, yeah, I studied architecture too. So, uh, I thought that was quite interesting, and the title of this article is Architects Gone Rogue, How to Use Your Skills from Architecture School Anywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure how you would use that in the jail, but (laughs) I I think that was an exception
0: uh, there. Now, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just said, yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely quite an exception, I think.
2: Yeah, he was quite (laughs) the exception to the rule. But, uh, you know, and, it, and it's an it, it caught my attention because this relates to me directly as well. Uh, as mm-hmm. you know, uh, w- the three of us studied architecture. And uh, a few years ago, I would say four years ago, maybe five years ago, uh, I got the opportunity to work at uh, at a machine shop uh, and run the machine shop. And now uh, that's what I do all day. I, I, mm-hmm. de- I still design. Design yeah. is something I still do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. But now with the added benefit of actually making things at the end of the day, uh, as you know when you're dealing with architecture you could design something and you might see it built two years from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, I mean in, in one of my
0: old jobs like when I, I worked there for five years and I had two projects built all <laughs> time. In five years, yeah, yeah. In five years, right. Yeah.
2: But that's kinda normal, you know, architecture and construction is a slow-moving uh, smo- slow-moving field for mm-hmm. obvious reasons but uh, what I'm doing now with with machinery and designing machines and uh, building uh, components, it's a very fast-moving uh, field because every hour that you are not s- resolving the problem for your client means that they're down, production's down, products are not getting out the door. So it's very, very fast-moving. I think I really enjoy the fact that
0: it's such a fast-moving uh, industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Claudia, you're also in a different field in architecture now. So when you, why don't we start that when you tell us? about what you're doing now that's not in the architecture field.
1: Yeah, um, so it's interesting in the article, like the way that uh, the examples or the samples that were presented, the way that each uh, practitioner presented themselves, they were like, I'm I'm an architect gone, you know, whatever they are. So in my case, since I've never really practiced like traditional architecture because I practice urban design, uh, urban planning, so I'm an urban designer gone, environmentalist policy, um, policy analyst, mm-hmm. which is more, <laughs> it sounds so boring in a way, right? Because, um, yeah, I'm an environmental policy analyst now. Um, but that combines advocacy and an organizer. So I, I, I would consider myself an organizer and and, and doing a lot of outreach, mm-hmm. So, com- which includes community development, community-based um Design and yeah,
0: which is still very similar to what you had started doing right out of architecture school.
1: Exactly. Right. So yeah, so it is rogue in a way that it's mm-hmm. it's done from the from a different lens. Right. But I'm still doing the same thing. You
3: mm-hmm.
0: know, Ray, y- your wife also went to architecture school. You actually guys met working at an architecture firm, but she also moved into something different for a while.
2: Uh yeah, she uh, she studied a uh, residential design. Uh, and she was—that's how we met. We were working at the same firm, and she was doing just the residential uh, work. Mm-hmm. And uh, shortly, shortly after uh, the the big real estate crunch where people lost their jobs, and she was one of those. She actually ended up going into um, uh, cooking and uh, being a, a personal chef. Mm-hmm. And then uh, some time went by, and we were both asked to uh, work here at the at the machine shop, and that's where we're working now. And, she is also doing a lot of design. She doesn't get the opportunity to make things on the floor, but I think that a lot of what she has learned and a lot of the influence that architecture school had on her, she uses on a daily
0: basis as well. All right. All right. Um, but let's. I mean, let's. Uh, wait, uh, well, I'll say this for my part. I- I'm still a practicing architect. I right now I'm working in architecture and residential architecture, and uh, that's really all I've done since graduating from school. And while I was going to school, I've been doing a lot of architecture photography as well, I have an architecture photography company, Um, but in large part everything I do is still somewhat tied to architecture, I think the only part where I've gone rogue was sort of the photography part, Um, but uh, so why don't we talk a little bit about other people we know that have sort of gone a different direction, maybe from architecture school or whatever, I mean who else do you guys know that fits this sort of gone rogue?
2: Well, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the young ladies I went to school with, uh, her first name is Anna. Mm-hmm. Uh, she went, We went to school together, she finished uh, her degree and then was working for an architecture firm. But now is a full-time cake designer and mm-hmm. baker. Mm-hmm. So, And I've seen some of her work, it's, it's quite beautiful as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would definitely not have envisioned that uh, kind of departure for her. But it seems to be doing very well, and I think perhaps the, uh, the uh, training she got in architecture school uh, has given her a sharper eye into the desi- design of her pastries.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, see, and I know somebody I went to school with, and I, I don't want to start names out there, but she and her husband went into flipping houses for a long time, and mm-hmm. that, that was sort of mainly what they were doing, and I know now they mostly rent, they're, they're doing a lot of rentals and things like that, but they're still somewhere in the, flip, in the flipping business what about you Claudia? you know anybody
1: so i i'm defining rogue in a very like j- exactly like the sample that that ray gave mm-hmm. and and you know in a way that it's something different than architecture mm-hmm. like and a I complete that, departure from it yeah a departure mm-hmm. from architecture mm-hmm. and i think the m- most that i would say is i have heard of people going into you know, banking, and you know, maybe doing like going into and doing their MBAs.
0: You know, somebody that's a photographer, and that's all he does. With, with um,
1: no, but he, he actually yeah. does architecture as well. Oh, he does yeah. still. Learning. Yeah, yeah, okay. it's because it's it's always you know your fallback,
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, because that is your profession. You know, that's it's it's people vacillate between going into um, something that that they're passionate about or a creative outlet,
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, but then you know, like when it comes down to paying your bills you know, you have to go back to doing architecture sometimes because that's what you do.
3: Um,
1: But actually going rogue is an interesting thing. I mean, I know a lot of people who have gone into working for organizations, um, non-profit organizations, or, you know, who have worked on LEED, for example, and then they ended up working for USGBC, Mm -hmm. the Green Building Council, and they've done a lot of policy work for them.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, Or, you know, planners who work for the uh, Urban Land Institute and they're leading, you know, programs there. Um,
0: but you don't look that rogue, necessarily? I
1: don't, because, I, you know, I, I, I actually have talked to people who are leading that, and the way that they see it is like, oh, well, we don't need to do the creative side or the design side, because mm-hmm. we're leading leading a project. And what I often see is that those particular people are not necessarily creative. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't in their, in, in their main... Like, they weren't the designers of the firm, or they mm-hmm. weren't, you know, like, the ones who were, who wanted to work with, with BIM, you know, who were really, like, like, interested and curious about, you know, like, what's the new technology? They were more interested about the management. Mm-hmm.
0: But, so, to you, Ray's friend that he mentioned that's gone into making cakes, she's still doing design. So, is that gone rogue, or is that not gone rogue?
1: Yeah, but that's something. That the scale of it is completely different, right? Mm-hmm. The the material is completely different. The client, uh, while you do, you still have a client. Um, even the pressure and the timeline for the project is completely different.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, so what do you think, Ray? I mean, how how did you define the going rogue part?
2: Well, I think I think what Claudia is saying is kind of interesting. Uh, you know, as far as rogue, and, and in the article uses some interesting examples. Uh, for example, the uh, Sharp, I believe his name was, uh, Evan Sharp, that ended up studying architecture and then uh, creating the Pinterest uh, empire, I guess Mm -hmm. you would say, the Pinterest Mm -hmm. empire. So I mean, that is kind of a complete departure, uh, however, uh, still some elements of design, in particular graphic design when you look at a website, but coding, obviously, completely opposite of, of, uh, of architecture. Um, so I think that in in that regard, I'm gonna have to agree with Claudia about uh, the nature of the article being rogue, uh, and how it, it kind of implies doing anything but architecture. Mm. So uh, does it? Would that exclude uh, if you are designing? I don't know. I don't think it would exclude. I think that you would still be considered rogue. Mm. Um, but the examples of what she was mentioning, uh, you know, studying architecture and then going into policy making. I think that's also rogue, even though you, it might be related. For for example, the uh, the individuals that are uh, working at the USGBC, mm-hmm. uh, they are not designing buildings anymore. They're they're uh, designing the policy and constructs for designing buildings. So, uh, it, one of the things that Claudia mentioned that actually is very very interesting is uh, the individuals that she was pointing out that maybe did not have that creative uh intuition that a creative drive kind of ended up going elsewhere uh not necessarily by choice but because of ability now that is interesting hmm. you know they they studied architecture anybody who studies architecture the, you ask them the first thing they're going to tell you is i want to design everybody well, wants to design
0: well i mean yeah uh, uh, I, no there were some people in my class that <laughs> clearly did not want to design but i see what you're saying yeah yeah because the last thing
2: I'll tell you what happened in my experience working at the architecture firm, which I loved, it was a great place, um, but I was particularly good at specifications. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, I was I was very very good at specifications. So what happens that you end up being good at something and then you get more of that thrown at you? And guess what? I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like specifications. But I've I've written so many for so many projects. I don't want to see any anymore. Mm-hmm. And that kind of helped uh, make that decision to stop practicing architecture.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, and that's, that's an interesting thing because I felt like there were, there were a lot of people that straight out of school sort of knew, okay, I went through the five years of architecture school, but now I'm going to go do something else. I'm not going to go into architecture. Some of the people that I went to school with knew off the bat that that's not what they wanted to do. They were studying this in a way to then m- go into another field. Um, And it was a related field. um, Interesting, um, because you worked in architecture for a while. It's not like Claudia, I mean, you were working at an architecture firm. You weren't working, Um, yeah, yeah, you weren't working necessarily directly in architecture, but then you guys decided to go on from a different place. Because I do feel like that's two different skill sets, or you you learn a certain skill set in school, and you learn a different skill set at a firm. Oh yeah, absolutely. <coughs> um, yeah, which is interesting. So maybe we talk about it in that sense. Because uh, let me read this email that we got from uh, we a, as part of this discussion. I I put out a field. I put out a uh, request for people to tell their stories. You know, and, and here's one of the ones we got. Um, from this is from Logan Drittenbass. I hope I didn't kill his name. But uh, let me just read this email real quick, and then maybe we can talk about what he discusses here. Um, he says I went to FAU, which is where we all went to school. Right. Mm-hmm. I graduated with a bachelor's of architecture and now work for a general contractor in Austin, Texas. The transition from school into this field of work was actually quite easy. During my last year in school, the professor pushed us to use mainly BIM software for a thesis project. This came to be one of the greatest assets when looking for my current job. I was hired as an estimator, but soon showed them my skills in Revit and quickly became a BIM coordinator after picking up Navisworks knowledge. And learning how different building systems work. I am on the other side of the architects, but I work very closely with them. I wouldn't say I've gone rogue from the architectural field or, or profession, but working for a GC is definitely dif- different from what I was expecting to do at a school. I enjoy what I do every day. Um, real quick before we jump right in. For people that don't know, BIM stands for Building Information Modeling, which is a, a new sort well not new, but it's sort of the way architecture has gone where it is a sort of a model of the entire building rather than just sort of a specific design.
1: Two-dimensional.
0: Right. So um, this is interesting because he's saying the skills he learned at school send him into this other field even though it's a related field so what do we think the skills, what skills that we're learning at school helps people go into other fields from architecture What, what would you guys think those skills are?
2: Well, you know, I think it's interesting when we think of architecture, and I'm not sure how many of our listeners are, are in this industry mm-hmm. uh, or, or had this course of study, but uh, wh- one of the things I got from architecture was the idea of thinking critically about a problem mm-hmm. because really that's what architecture is. There's a set of problems that we need to solve, which means that architects are problem solvers. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you learn as you're going through all these design uh, courses is that there is no one correct answer there right. is an infinite number of ways to arrive at a solution uh, and and they're all uh, equally correct. And you know in quotes kind of correct but some are very clearly better than others and so I, I think for me the idea the ability to be able to see potential solutions uh, avenues of approaching a problem problem solving in general, mm. uh, and then of course executing everything you learn during this problem solving uh, exercise into creating a, 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 in in other words, in, in the uh, the finished solution.
3: Right. Right. Hmm. So right.
2: So for me, I think critical thinking was part of the, the big influence that school mm. gave me. What do you think, Glenn?
1: So what Ray just described is basically a whole new field that's being taught at uh, many uh, universities. It's it specifically it started off at Stanford University. It's called design thinking. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is that um, it started uh, it came off from the uh, industrial design um, department. You know, like engineers and the, you know doing more industrial design work, and also the architecture departments and all of that because it is a process. Mm-hmm. Right there is a process to the, to what we do and how we solve the, the, you know a problem through design, and just like Ray said, prototyping is a big part of it because you have to test it and then you know there's like usually the best solution, mm-hmm. and then design thinking is applied to anything, anything right. and everything. Um, what's interesting though, because um, I practice design thinking, and I've oh whenever I've been in this uh, meetings, seminars, workshops name it, I've done it, I've gone to them, um, and there are a few architects in those groups, and we're all just looking at each other like, you know, like, well, we, this is what we, we went to f- school for four to five years, some people six, you know, what we paid really <laughs> a lot of money to go to, and um, it's it's an interesting concept because it's, it's you, you end up seeing it like done in a one week seminar, and all of a sudden, people are like, "Yeah, I'm a design thinker as well, and I can do this, and I can use this product." <laughs> and it completely devalues everything that we work for, right? And what we work with, and what what our tools are. And um, and of course, to me, it then now that I'm older, I realize it really doesn't bother me. At first, it was bothering me that you know people would do that, but now it doesn't bother me because. Once you see someone like that practicing, you trying to attempt to, to to solve something like that within you know with only a weekend workshop,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it they're not gonna be able to solve that problem. It's not gonna be. It's just gonna be like a mess. Right, they're <laughs> probably
0: the not gonna the stick to to the, to the system.
1: Yeah, or yeah. it's you know it's a very like uh, very on the surface type of solution, and it's on the surface mm-hmm. type of problem anyways. So it's really not a, a sus- like a sustainable or thing problem. Um, so to me like that's what architects do. We we basically learn design thinking through a through a different process of building and something that's very tangible. Mm-hmm. Right? So when you know the ups and downs about budgeting, when you know the ups and ups and downs about um
0: Well but you don't learn that it's cool. And right? th- and
1: that's the thing. And then, you know, like one of the things in the article, so you know, I was looking at the comments. By the way, this particular article was shared over six thousand times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but only ten people commented on them, which was really interesting. So that mm-hmm. tells you that six thousand people that felt like this was such a cool article that they needed to share because they, perhaps, wanted to be rogue, mm-hmm. go rogue. But uh, you know, in the among the ten comments, uh, someone was saying entrepreneurship. You know, there's like most architects yeah, you learn so much entrepreneurship. I couldn't, ag- I did not agree with that at all because I don't necessarily believe that. Uh, and, you know, this is not all architects, obviously, but most architects that I've met, and these are in large international firms, they don't really know how to run, a f- you know, a project, barely a, a firm or a small studio,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, to run a whole business is really hard. And I think mm-hmm. that most architects don't, you know, it's like, to, you know, they don't have the skills in school. They don't gain the skills, to, you know, that you would gain in an, M- you know, in an MBA program mm-hmm. somewhere else right
0: no, and that's definitely true and I, I think what you're saying stands true for a lot of architects in larger firms I, I've mostly worked in smaller firms and I think well they don't all know how to run firms you can at least learn <laughs> what it is they're doing wrong and you can start to see that and I've worked at a bunch of different firms and I I, I could say I've picked up a lot of things from the different person running that firm you know um, but I mean it's taken with a part of school itself and what skills we're learning at school um, I think one of the things that I've learned at school that's helped me a lot, in, well, I, again, I'm working in architecture and I, I, I think having that mindset itself is that you know what an architect does a lot of the time is sort of you've got to coordinate a lot of different in in the profession, a lot of different people, right? You've got to coordinate the structure, the mechanical the plumbing, all of these things um, and in architecture school, you got to sort of think about the different parts of it as well, right? You can't just sort of concentrate on one view of it and you're you, at... As you go through school, you get taught to think about the system, think about the structure, as well as the design and the person. So the fact that you sort of have to think about these different parts of it, I think that probably helps quite a bit when you go into a different field. You know, you sort of learn this sort of managing of different parts of a whole.
1: Yeah, it's great for UX design, for like website design, for example, because the user user experience is... Mm -hmm like right now the most important thing
0: right and if you're going into construction I think that helps if you're going into making cakes I think that's got to help good you know well for one thing you got to put a lot of things together to make a cake but you also got to think about the design and the running the business and all of that stuff you know
2: so. you know what's interesting though is uh, you're absolutely right uh, one of the first jobs I had when I got out of school was working at a uh, structural firm I was uh, you know at the time mm-hmm. that was all I could I could get I started as a draftsman as mm-hmm. a, in a uh, structural firm but it was really, uh, that was the title, but it really was it was architectural uh, coordination with the structure. And uh, it basically, it was a bit of a translation. We get these drawings from the architects, and what we were doing was uh, post-tension tunnel form concrete. And it, it just so happens that by pure luck, the, uh, the firm that I was working for, the owner had basically invented and, and patented a technique for doing that. And that's who I was working for, so it was a very good experience uh, uh, to learn that. But anyway, there was a lot of coordination involved, and uh, as you know, being on the on the structural side, and I worked there about a year, uh, I had to coordinate with the architect, not realizing that shortly after I was going to be on that other end. So it was quite a, a helpful uh, experience, you know, that that separation between the school and in the, the theoretical and the practical aspects of architecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things I realized uh, on graduation day, the day that I knew it was over, you know, right after your your uh, final presentation, after everything was over, mm-hmm. I realized that that the the one thing I did not learn in architecture school, the one thing, and it's probably kind of universal for for uh, study at university, is I didn't learn how to be independent. Mm. Uh, the one thing that you realized on that last day of your final presentation that your very next step is going to work for someone else
3: mm-hmm.
2: so the, I would say that the only thing lacking in my architectural education was how to be independent, how to be successful uh, th- they don't teach you those things, right. so I think that you either have those things or you're going to have to learn them later on
0: yeah, yeah No. I mean I agree mm-hmm. with that
1: that's entrepreneurship yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Um, Okay, no, so, I think we definitely, well, let me add this before we move away from things that you learn in school, I think the fact that the profession has moved so much towards computers, architecture profession has moved so much towards computers, um, and we learn, not everybody, but a lot of us learn, this is back in 2002 when we graduated, but a lot of us learned a lot of computer software to do these drawings also sort of helps you being able to spread into a different... That's what happened with um, with this case here of, uh, of Logan, you know, he learned a software and that software allowed him to get a job in a different field or slightly different field. I think the fact that we learned some of these modeling softwares and whatnot helps us go to other fields as well, or makes it so that we could do that. Um, something that I think you know even 50 years ago when everything was drawn by hand wasn't necessarily the case if you went to architecture school then and you, know, you learn how to be an architect you pretty much have to work in architecture but you're just drawing yeah. by hand
2: well you know 50 years ago dra- being a draftsman was a profession you could, right. you could just draft things now uh, you know employers want more for their money if you're, if you're going to be drafting you have to have a college degree in that field as well mm-hmm. even if you're just going to be drafting you mm-hmm. know, a lot of times what happens, is a lot of the jobs you get straight out of architecture school is drawing bathrooms or drawing details mm-hmm. or,
0: you know.
3: <laughs>
0: Sorry, but that. that's that dog, <laughs> that's that dog. Um, no, but you're yeah. right, in the, the, that first job that you got, I, I, nowadays it may not even exist anymore. I know a lot of the search engineers that I worked with were the last few that had people that were just straight draftmen. Um and now, because they've moved into Revit, they can't even do that anymore. You can't—they can't give somebody to draft the Revit. They have to do it themselves. The structural engineer does it themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, so that even that's sort of gone away to a degree. Um, yeah,
2: yeah. Finding—you know—those jobs. Well, in my current industry now, you know, uh, where we manufacture industrial components and, and whole machines, mm-hmm. uh, well, a lot of what I do is actually still on AutoCAD. And there's another software package I use a lot, which is SolidWorks. SolidWorks is kind of the, the Revit equivalent for mechanical components and industrial uh, design and machinery. Mm-hmm. So it has all the same kind of information. Y- I could quickly find out what the mass of the whole machine is, or what the mechanical properties of a certain component are, do mm-hmm. stress analysis. A lot of things that you would, can do, it, like in Revit or other uh, BIM-type software, you can do with with that, and they're not the only ones. But uh, obviously, without the experience, and, and you know, to to tighten up that point you made, the exposure that we had in school, without the experience of of doing three D modeling or uh, computer uh, drafting or any of those things,
0: doing what I do now would be impossible. Hmm. Yeah, um, well, that's good as far as schooling. So since we've all worked in architecture firms. I guess the question would be, is there anything particularly you learned at an architecture firm that's helped you guys move to a different field? Um, I know Claudia, they helped you decide you didn't want to be there anymore. (laughs) No, I I mean, I'll
1: tell you, like, I did not learn um, GIS, Geographic Information Systems and Mapping, at, um, in in school, and it was actually, so I started, Working as a project admin because I could sort and file. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. like when I, everybody starts, you know, somewhere like that's entry level, mm-hmm. and that's a reality. And I think people need to understand that. Uh, a lot of twenty year olds right now don't understand that. Um, and but once I started working and moved from one firm to another to another, I had the opportunity. You know, like I was given, hey, you know, can you learn this tool? Mm-hmm. You know, we we're, we're about to get into a, fo- a federal project and it's gonna be about a five-year project and we're gonna need you to learn this tool. Can you do it? Mm -hmm. Of course the answer is yes, you know, and I have to learn how to do it and I'm gonna be the best at it. And that led me to um, really understand urban planning uh, from a policy perspective and seeing uh, geography and learning more about the environment and the tools. Like, um, and uh, that, I think that, that's what led me to. That's one of the reasons why that led me to this particular path that I'm in because I'm. I'm there's a technical p- aspect to the type of work that I'm doing right now, and that I want to continue doing, and that I want to do. And I'm constantly learning about, you know, the technology behind it, mm-hmm. behind assessments, and through GIS is where I learned it, mm-hmm. and I did that only because I was given that Zero. opportunity okay. at a firm. Yeah, so so
2: that's where you got your first exposure to to GIS was at a firm. Yes. Huh, I didn't know that. I thought you you went and studied that on your own
1: well, I did, but you know the because firm i needed to yeah. I needed to do it like so basically at night I would practice and practice and practice, and then during the day I needed to deliver deliver deliver
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um I guess I would say one of the things that's helped me and again, I, I still work in architecture, but you know in the side business that I have a photographer I think that's helped the architecture working in a firm has helped me with is um. Sort of exposures to the clients, and sort of dealing with almost the sales side of architecture. You know, you have to you have to know what to say to a client, how to say it, when to say it. Um, I think learning all those sort of social parts of it, which for me worked hard because I was a shy kid growing up. You know, but it sort of socially has helped me come out, and it's helped me in the getting a client for photography or, or and all of those things, those interactions that I've. Yeah, I've always been able to make friends, but knowing how to deal with a client was something that I had to learn, you know. So, I think that's something that I learned at a firm that I wouldn't have learned any other way, any, any other place else. You know?
2: What about uh, during, the, during the juries uh, in, clas- in your design classes? You didn't feel like you had to sell your design?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess so, but, you know, I've always been very comfortable talking about something that I create. You know, that was never an issue. But when you're dealing with a client, you're not necessarily just talking about the project itself. You have to be able to also sort of carry on a conversation about them and about you know something that might interest them. There's there's a different dynamic there than this is what I've done. Here's what I did it. Right when you're talking to a client, you you there may be questions they're asking you that have nothing to do with the project, but they're looking to see how you answer. Yeah. it's
1: a different type of pressure I yeah, always think it, it because it's it's sales driven right, right. Um, you know like for instance I in, in a firm I was always in being in this in the in the urban design studio I was always brought in to uh, to sell a specific community you know like a community development that we were doing and uh, you know I'm saying sell yeah. but you know I would present the work that we were doing in community development but the reason why we were doing that is so that we could get the project mm-hmm. the specific architectural project. Projects like the actual buildings, mm-hmm. and it was interesting because I would present that work to uh, my work to people, but I knew that the end result was for us to get more projects, more right. profit, and more buildings, and you know. And I had to do a different type of presentation than just, mm-hmm. you know, oh, here's the the work that I did.
0: Yeah. Well, and I'll give you a specific example where you know, when you're presenting something, you sort of have all the answers as to why you did something, right? In school, in school. Um, one of the things that I had to learn in, in practice is that the client may sometimes ask you a question that you don't know the answer to and it's okay to say I don't know but I will find that out for you, you know. and that's something that never came up in school I had the answers because I did the design myself for basically myself <laughs> or you know the design that I wanted to do when the client itself who's the design is for them ask a question about a specific point and you know you may not have that answer right away it, it, I I learned that part of it. Like it's okay. Like I don't well I don't know that, but I'm gonna find that out. Mm-hmm. And it's not something you use very often. But at least you know that's the kind of interaction that you learn with working with people that way.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, especially now where you're working with uh, you know individual people and it's their projects. Right. Those uh, I'm guessing that those questions are much more sp- specific, and a lot of times they might be mm-hmm. finish related.
0: Right. Uh, or, you know, working with residential, some of the things might be like, I have this mixer. Is that going to fit in this cabinet? <laughs> like, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, your mixer that's are a ridiculous fit. question. Yeah, yeah like, yeah, it might. I l- we can measure it, and we end up doing that. We end up finding out what mixer is and look at the dimensions to see if it'll fit. Yep. But, you know, that's one of the cases. like, I don't know. Let's tell me what mixer you have, and I, I will let you know if it fits, yeah. you know, so. Well, I'll tell you, my
2: experience with developers, the the, the number one question the number mm-hmm. one question from developers is how much is this gonna cost me? Yeah. That's the number one. So mm-hmm. I think uh, probably, you know, when you're dealing with an I- on an individual basis, uh, those questions are, are a bit more interesting than it's mm-hmm. always than always being how much, how much, how much.
0: Right. But you know, but people still expect you even though you're the architect, you're not the contractor, people still expect the architect to know, well how much is this going to cost me? I've had people show up to that and like, well I wanna renovate my three-bedroom house. How much do you think it'll be? <laughs> what <laughs> okay, okay, what tile are you gonna buy? I don't know. Yeah. You know, you can you can spend two dollars a square foot on tile. Or you can spend a hundred dollars a square foot on tile. <laughs> yeah. What's your taste? Um. So yeah, you know the question. I think th- so. That's one of those things is the questions yeah. and how you respond to them is yeah. something I've learned in the f- in in the practice. Um, well, I mean, this is good. So how? I mean. How, you, how would what do you guys leave this at for yourself you know where do you leave this topic at as far as you're concerned with architects gone rogue you think it's going to happen more often you think it's, per- it's a natural thing it's probably been happening for since the beginning of architecture practice what, what do you guys think in sort of like wrapping up Point well it's view.
2: interesting when you think of, of all the uh you know when you think of the, the masters, the great masters of architecture, <laughs> they not only practiced architecture but they all did something else. For example, mm-hmm. you know, look at what he painted, Mies mm-hmm. did furniture, look at, Frank Lloyd Wright did furniture and glass windows. I mean, right. they, they all did something else. I mean, yes, it was related to what they were doing, but it was most definitely something else. Frank mm-hmm. Gary with his chair, line of chairs, right. uh, you, you know. We can keep on. <laughs> you can keep on going. Yeah, you can keep going. Uh, yeah. Eames as another example there. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that it's probably a very natural transition to o- either to also do something else, or to just say, you know what, I'm going to shift things over. Or maybe as an architect and with that kind of education and training, maybe you get more opportunities. Mm-hmm. Maybe more opportunities are presented, and it makes it easier to make those transitions.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. What about you, Claudia?
1: Um I would leave it at sort of like a little bit of advice and and kind of you know like I'm in my late 30s and I recently went to a conference and heard some early tw- you know peop- some graphic designers who were in their early 20s talking about how they found their happiness in 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 their work because they were so miserable doing their work and mm-hmm realize how bad it was and now that they're in there you know they're 24 they've found it and they figured it out <laughs> <laughs> and it, yeah. and you know and and now they were experts so therefore you know they were giving a whole talk about it <laughs> mm-hmm. and everybody was amazed by how great they were um and i i kept on telling myself it's like number one this isn't you know you still haven't found it number one and number two is that you know just give it time like because finding success and happiness in whatever your particular role is whether it's in a firm or in your own passion um, uh, whether you know your creative passion whatever that is you know whether it's cake making or whatever um, it will happen but it usually happens with experience because you have to live you know Mm -hmm. everybody will is content or discontent through your experience you will Mm -hmm. find different things it's not a a straight path Mm -hmm. and it's it's just being able to find that happiness comes. It's something you have to like look for, right. and it comes with age. Um, unfortunately, it does. Like you can try to find it earlier, but trust me, it will later on. You will find something else that's interesting, and or you will find that you're better at something because ultimately, it's about what you're good at.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing you can't buy experience. You got to exactly.
1: earn
0: it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I agree with that 100% with what you just said 100% cause Came, I came, I'm, I'm, I'm still in the architecture field, I've been in the architecture field since 2000, before I was going to school, um, and, I c- and we'll talk about this maybe at some other time, but I came to be in architecture by mistake. You know, I was going to be a computer scientist. Um, and now this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. So yeah, you never know when things are going to turn, and you're going to find what you want to do. So yeah, I agree with you 100%. Um, and I think, for me as far as uh, closing. Um, still being in the field I guess my piece of advice for everybody and whether you're going rogue or whatever, I, I remember early on in architecture school somebody, and it was one of my professors, told me you know you gotta see the architect as sort of the master builder and I, I, I remember hearing that phrase, sort of the architect is the master builder a couple of times in architecture school I think now we're at a point where that's to me and this is where I'm going with architecture uh, still being in the field is that it's shifting from, you know, this idea of the architect as a master to sort of be the, the architect as a maker and if you're gonna learn to make things and you're gonna become a much more well-rounded person and I think that's what anybody going to school for architecture or that's thinking about going into architecture or even leaving architecture should start to sort of move towards that thinking um, and, you know, maybe I'm wrong about it but that's how I'm feeling about it at this point after what, like 14 years of being in architecture? So, um,
1: super valid. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So, Good and uh, one yeah one last thing of advice if, if you're not an architect, if you're not going to architecture school, maybe one thing to check out is I have this book that was given to me at one point. It's called The 101 Things I Learned in Architecture School. Um, it's by the MIT Press. So, maybe check that out and see some of the things that we've learned in architecture school sort of yeah. condensed into like each page is a little lesson. Um, and uh, I like the book. You know, it's, it's, not the end will be all But you know Something to check out Well let me
2: ask you this About that book Does it cover the The three weeks Of stressing and torture no. With no production And then mm. cramming Everything in the night Before a jury And no. and figuring it out Does And it
0: the, lack of s- the lack of sleep And sh- having to present Your project
1: <laughs> That's after a skill sleep That's a skill in itself yeah. And yeah, I it always is. embrace That skill Because
2: yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. it's, it's something When you had a three week Deadline You you tried to figure Things out Just you, There was Sometimes you had a hard time coming up with the idea, the hmm. the inspiration. But yeah. the night before it was due, the inspiration seemed to flow. Yeah, <laughs> something but about the pressure,
0: right? Yeah. yeah, and I feel like it was sort of what pushed on us. Like the teachers would, I think the professor would, to totally a degree, sort of keep you designing and keep you thinking about it until like the last week or the last few days. And it's like, yeah, I like your idea, I go with it. And it's like, well, now I have to do everything, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a good topic. Thanks, Ray, for coming up with that. And great.
3: Uh, yeah, great. Uh, yeah. great.
0: I, I hope, you know, let us know what you guys are thinking. If there's still some people out there that have gone rogue and want to share their stories, please send them in. Maybe we'll read them next week or something. You know, what would be
2: interesting, uh, though, huh? is how many people listen to this because they are interested in architecture design that are not in the field and never studied it? That might be kind of curious, too. Hmm?
0: Yeah, oh, Yeah, yeah. Great question. Th- Send us some emails. Maybe what we made if we get enough of them, maybe we'll have a, a midweek show where we just sort of read out some of the emails we get or, or tweets or whatever. So that we have a that's right we have a made Twitter account now. What is it? It's Admade podcast. Yeah. So Admade podcast. We
1: have a lot of followers. Yeah. Building followers.
0: So all right, cool. Well, let's move on to unless anybody has anything else to say, we can move on to the product of the week. All right, let's move on to the product of the week. All right, so this week, our product of the week is called Piper, and it's from playpiper.com. Now this, as always, we are not affiliated with any product we're talking about here. I will say, however, this product, we met some of the people that well, we met the, the creators of this product while we were at National Maker Faire. Um, and we got a chance to talk to them, and uh, I'll talk a little bit in, in the next seks- segment about the video that's g- that I'm putting out where I talk a little bit with them. So, but uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Piper. Um, did you guys get a chance to look at this? I did look at it. Mm-hmm. So, le- quick description of it. It's basically a computer, if you will, that's sent to you. And the cool thing about this is it's a kit that kids are supposed to put together themselves, right? And there's blueprints to put it together. The great thing is that as you're putting this thing together, you reach the point where you put enough of it together that you can use the machine itself to help you finish putting the thing together or to, to put the thing together itself. And and it's all based on... Um, or it's all run through uh, mine mine Minecraft, Minecraft, which is... Uh, I know you hadn't heard of it before, Claudia, but Minecraft is basically a, a video game, if you will. It's a sort of open source, open world video game where you can build different things. So they've used Minecraft itself to sort of create this game that helps you put the machine together. Um, so it's a teaching tool that you then end up with this sort of mini computer and, and you can use it to learn more things and mess with the machine. It, it's very cool. I, I really enjoyed it and the kids at Maker Faire just were all over this thing. So what do you guys think, Ray? Not having had experience it itself, what do you think from looking just at their website, basically?
2: Oh uh, yeah, well I looked at the website and I looked at uh, some of the videos they had there, and honestly I was quite impressed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I the only reason I am aware of Minecraft is um, from my niece and nephew. Otherwise mm-hmm. I would have no idea what it is. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It's a game really with no no goal. It's uh, you you go around this environment and you use the natural resources to Make whatever you need to make. Uh, so it, it's kind of an interesting from that respect. It, it's kind of showing the, the video game itself uh, shows kids that something comes from something else. You got raw mm-hmm. materials, and you can, you know, get a tree, turn it into wood, get the wood, build a house. So the computer was quite an uh, an interesting uh, step in that in that kind of thinking. And uh, one of the the Things that I saw the the video is only uh, about an in, a minute long or so, but as uh, one of the children were putting it together, the the girl says "aha," and she figured it out. She had that moment of epiphany, and she figured out how this goes together. And they captured it at that moment, and you could actually mm-hmm. see that they are definitely learning something. Uh, but and you know, as you said, it comes in a kit of parts. It has you know the power supply and the processor, a little screen. I mean. Basic components and the the box itself that they had to assemble. Mm-hmm. So it kind of covers a great range of, of making and building, and it even has a, a set of plans that they have to follow. Right. Uh, so I think it's a, a, a beautiful learning tool, and uh, I am I am impressed with how they put this together. Mm-hmm. Cool. What do you think, Gloria?
1: Yeah. So I th- I think it was great. Uh, you know, it's uh, by the way the website is playpiper.com. dot yeah. And when we were there at the Maker Fair, I didn't. I first of all, I don't know anything about Minecraft at all. Mm -hmm. And um, all I could see was the the diversity of the kids in ages and just every possible color, race. Every it didn't matter like sex. And all the kids were like right there, just. Playing this thing, and they like were pushing each other almost like we want to play. it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they were learning how to put together a the computer, Mm -hmm. a computer. They were putting uh, how to code even you know at different ages and ranges, right? And um, and then when you look at the the actual toy, you could call it is just it's it looks so simple. Um, so to me, like I didn't even know what Minecraft was and is. And now that I'm learning a little bit more about it, it's just it's such an interesting concept, the fact that you can create this world, basically, and as you're creating this world, you're learning, and you're being very, but the, what Piper did here is that they're being very um, uh, uh, intentional, mm-hmm. which is something that Minecraft is not necessarily as intentional about, uh, because it's such an open source type of, of game, right? So. Um, that's, I think, the intentionality of, of um, teaching kids how to code and teaching them in a, in a step-by-step process as they're growing mm-hmm. is really cool.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with everything you guys have said. I think it's a great product. It's also just their first product. They're going to come up with more things as it goes. Um, I think the one drawback of it, and it's an understandable thing, it's it's $300. You know, not everybody can afford that. But I think the great thing about it, when I was talking to them, is they've come up with a system where schools can actually rent the kits from them, oh. so that kids can put these things together. You know, you take it apart for the next group of kids that then l- learns it or whatever, and then it's sort of a rental. You, then you return the the kits, and then they rent it to somebody else. So they have they're trying to come up with a system or a way of getting it into even people that can't necessarily afford to pay the 300 bucks. Know, 'Cause not everybody can afford to pay the three hundred dollars. No, of course not, yeah. So, so I think they're they're doing great things with it. Um, and, you know, hopefully as it goes maybe they can figure out a, a less expensive kit or, or whatnot.
1: Um. Yeah, I like the fact that they have a mission and their mission mm-hmm. is very simple. Our mission is to empower the inventors of tomorrow by giving them the tools to build creatively. <laughs> well it's you know, like very you know cliche in the in a way. It's, it's the fact that they have a mission is really cool Mm -hmm. Um, I really like that and that you can you know not just schools right you can do this in community centers you can do this at workforce development if you know like parents are going somewhere to learn um, a new skill they will take their kids because you know if they can take their kids because they can't find babysitting mm-hmm. then this would be something that that, or, that organization can also have mm-hmm. and then that way everyone is learning yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. well you know it's interesting because uh, and uh, Jose you can speak to this probably but when I was a kid I was very curious mm-hmm. and there this kind of stuff really wasn't available and if it was we you know we couldn't afford it but well, what what I did instead of, of putting things together is I took things apart mm. uh, I'm not sure if you did that too <laughs> Yeah. And yeah. got in trouble yeah. for it. You know, you take mm-hmm. things apart, you get in trouble for it. But what it what it shows is that there is uh, you know, children are naturally curious and you mm-hmm. have to uh you have to nurture that quality. And the ones that are very curious are gonna find a way to do it on their own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe not as a constructive uh a manner that they could.
0: Yeah, no, I mean I agree with you. I think my experience is slightly different because I my dad was a mechanical engineer, so he he had a computer at home. And even at that point, he would. I was so curious about the computer I wanted to learn. He would have a magazine that would have the code for a game. And I was like, I want to play that game. So he would, ma- he would have me sit down and type line by line <laughs> the code <laughs> of the game so he could save it and then I could play the game. So it's ah. somewhat what this is doing, you know? It's the put it together yourself. You want to play, you can play, but you got to put it together yourself first.
1: Yeah. Yeah, by the way, Ray, you're still as curious and mm. you're still taking things apart.
2: Oh uh, yeah, it's a different different level right. now. It's
3: more yeah. purpose <laughs> to it than
1: <laughs> than it yeah. used to be. And yeah. you're making money. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, uh, you know, I had to take apart the water jet. The uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Water line burst and got all the electronics wet.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, no, you mentioned. I remember you mentioning that yeah. last week, maybe. Yeah. Oh my God.
2: You do yeah. not want to know how much that cost. <laughs> you see <laughs> uh, and that's also
0: the coolest one of the coolest machines you guys have yeah. there <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: but yeah no, I had to replace several circuit boards some of the wiring uh, the servo amplifiers which are what runs the motors mm. Uh, mm. S- uh, a line filter power supply I mean you name it I, I spent mm. quite a bit replacing
3: parts
0: mm.
2: huh. but it's running now Good,
0: okay cool yeah but I will to anyway, back and use it at some point <laughs> yeah but
2: that's, whole, that's the whole part of the, the learning process yeah. you know uh, architecture school doesn't show you how to how to deal with electronic failure inside of an industrial yeah. machine.
0: No, yeah, exactly. But that that comes sure. from other
2: experiences. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. All right, cool. cool. Well, so yeah, check out playpiper.com. and, uh, and a video. Yeah, and then there's gonna be a video that has a small interview with the with the CEO of the company. Yeah. Oh, that's um, that would be nice. Yeah, yeah.
2: Oh, was he at the
1: Maker fair he was, yeah. he was
0: at the maker fair, he's there cool. selling and you're sort of trying to get in front of people and trying to get people to buy it, yeah. Yeah,
1: born in Ukraine and raised in America. And mm-hmm. look what
0: he's done. And then oh. they're based out of San Francisco from a graphic. Yeah. Right? Yep. So cool. Well let's move on to what are we working on? What are we seeing? What are we reading, making? <laughs> So what's everybody working on or or watching or, or whatnot? Ray? You guys there's something. There's gotta uh, be something.
2: Yeah. yeah, I'm always doing something. Yeah, um, you
0: were on vacation, so we understand if it's a little bit slower than before. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think I, I thought there was another a new video that came out. Um,
2: yeah, I'm not sure if you got a chance to look at it. Uh, I, I put it up last Thursday. Hmm. It's a video uh, I, I kinda discovered this by accident, but but Discover is not Right word because it's it's basically 200 year old knowledge. Mm. So I would say <laughs> it's a discovery for me. <laughs> <laughs> new to you. It's a rediscovery. It's, yeah, yeah. it's a rediscovery that comes. But it, well, And what happened is I accidentally knocked some magnets off my desk, and I, I have some, you know, those aluminum sheets for the shields. The oh, yeah. Huh? I have those right by my desk. So when I knocked this magnet off, the magnet uh, slid on that aluminum, but a lot slower than I expected it to fall Mm -hmm. like uh, you know you knock something off it less than a second hit the floor Mm -hmm. so it it just happened to hit this by accident in a perfect angle the magnet hit it and it took probably three or four seconds to slide down the aluminum Mm -hmm. and hit the floor and immediately i knew there was something going on here so i had to do a little research and then i I made a video that i posted uh last thursday and it's called uh uh, eddy currents in the aluminum Mm -hmm. uh Eddy currents are created by, by the magnet, and you you know we all know what magnets are and magnets are attracted to ferrous metals. But there's quite an interesting interaction between magnetism and non-ferrous metallic conductors. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did a quick video on on that. And, yeah. uh, I th- if you haven't seen it, I think you'd find it interesting.
0: Yeah, no, I, I checked it out. It was very cool. It was. Uh, I, I didn't know any of that either, so it was it was also. I mean, it was me. yeah,
2: yeah, if you've never seen it, you didn't know what that was, you're yeah. like, what is going on here? This is magic. It must be magic.
0: <laughs> 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 cool, cool. Anything else?
2: Uh, no, uh, I've got something else coming out uh, this week, another video, uh, cool. more machine related, though.
0: Nice, cool. All right, what about you, Claudia?
1: Uh, website. I have mm-hmm. a couple of websites that I need to work on this week, and I finished one earlier uh, on Friday. I use sites. From Google, oh, yeah, I use mm-hmm. that and I was really surprised of mm-hmm. how easy it is. Number one, it's free, mm-hmm. which I think is amazing, and you know when Google starts charging for all of their apps, um to everyone in mm. the entire galaxy, not just <laughs> the world, but the galaxy, mm-hmm. it's gonna be really hard <laughs> because mm-hmm. um, it was really good. it was just, this is for a non nonprofit organization, so um, I needed to do something. Cheap and easy, and just you know, just put information. It wasn't; it didn't need to be graphic-based mm-hmm. or anything. And I, I was really happy with it. And um, just to be able to share information and do project-based work with at least, you know, hopefully, I'm hoping that we'll have at least 20 people in each of the three projects that I just put, I just set, you know, set up. So you know, and the best thing is that you can track too, right? We mm-hmm. can, because that's the other thing that I wanted to do. I wanted to see how many people will go on the site and uh, will go into every specific. Project that mm-hmm. I put in there, so that's the that's a cool thing. But then the other ones, I'm um, yeah, I'm gonna be doing um yeah some some web design. Cool. For non-profit organizations.
0: Cool. Do you wanna name any of them or no?
1: Ah uh, yeah, the DC Latino Caucus is one that mm-hmm. I need to definitely do that, and yeah.
0: Cool. Mm, very cool. Um, for my part, I so I have this video which is basically a uh, a summary of National Maker Fair that's, that's gonna be out by the time this podcast is live that video is going to have already been out, um, so check it out, see the different things over at Maker Faire. Um, Are you going to put
2: that on your YouTube channel? Yeah,
0: I'm going to put that on my YouTube channel, I'll, I'll paste it into the into the Made uh, Made Facebook group as well, so right. so we, people can watch it. Um, and uh, I, I've also done some projects around the house here, which I'll make videos for, or I'll put something out for, maybe a, a blog, um, but the main thing I want to talk about that I watched was... Uh, Battlebots. I don't know if anybody's been <laughs> watching Battlebots. Oh
2: no, that was I. I watched it a long time ago. I didn't know it was
0: back. Yeah, yeah it's been back for two seasons, um, and you know it's always interesting because you see people making different robots or whatever. But what really stuck out to me, and which is why I'm bringing it up, is this is the first time this past episode, the first time that somebody made a robot that was actually a humanoid, Uh-oh. right? Most of the robots are, for lack of a word, they're like tanks, right? They're usually low to the ground. The most successful ones are spinners. It's like all spinners have some sort of spinning part to it that smacks the other one, <laughs> or they have something that flips them. So these guys decided we're going to make one that's a human. Race. It had arms, right? It didn't have legs, it was on wheels. It had arms and basically a head to it, somewhat. Um, and it was controlled by three people, and they had like an arm rig which they could move the arm with. And then there was somebody that drove it, and each there were th- so basically a three person. One had the right arm, one had the left arm, and then the person that would drive the robot around. Um, the robot didn't do very well; it, it, it got its butt kicked. <laughs> but but it was interesting because it's the first time that's happened in Battlebots, uh, and it was kind of clever. It had a shield in one hand, and they had like a, a sword in the other. And I think there was some kind of malfunction because the sword wasn't moving very much. Uh-huh. Um, and it, it's got its butt kicked but it was interesting I think people should check it out if you have a way of watching that on demand or whatever um, check it out it's interesting to see It's again it's making and it's
1: if you're a girl like yeah. trust me like I was just walking around by like by Jose and i and I stopped, I put what I was doing like on the side, and I was like glued to the yeah, t v <laughs> it was really cool
0: well and it's interesting because some of them have uh they they've uh, they've clearly amplified the rules a little bit, some of them have drones components to the robots yeah, now. Like yeah flying things. yeah, and the, like mm-hmm. you know fire being spit down, and stuff it, it's very interesting, so. It's it, they've ramped it up. If you watched it, I think it was like five, six years ago, and I think it had a slightly different name. I think it was called Battlebots. It was called something else, um, but it's the same idea. It's sort of it's ramped up. It's really ramped up.
1: And the teams are very competitive, and they yeah, have, they're, they're, they're definitely feeling stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I know Adam Savage was a guest host for the for the first couple of episodes too. So I, I I watch everything he does. So um, so yeah, check out Battlebots. I mean unless anybody has anything else to say I think that's, yeah. that's it for us today
1: yeah. uh, thank you good? yeah
0: thanks everybody for joining us any closing thoughts Ray? Uh,
2: no uh, but this was a very interesting discussion about yeah. the uh, the architects you know I think that it kind of uh, helped us look at perhaps the mechanism that drives people to go into something else and the skills that they take with them
0: yeah, yeah I think it's very cool, very cool discussion. Um, so yeah, uh, why don't we tell everybody real quick where they can see more about us? At
1: the city ecologist and on Twitter.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. And and now we also just started the made
1: made podcast. Yeah, I've been like on
0: Twitter. Yeah, yeah.
1: on Twitter and yeah, I've been posting and you know, like just please tweet us, and retweet Nick
0: us. Nick Cannon retweeted us.
1: Yes, Radio Shack.
0: Yeah, I mean, so
1: yeah, we're we're Bose getting there. The Radio
0: retweeted us, so yeah, yeah, so we're getting.
1: Congressman retweeted us, which yeah. is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, so, <laughs> so yeah, get on that Twitter. You gotta get on that Twitter, Ray. I'm gonna have to. <laughs> yeah, and uh, of course you have a Facebook page, which is homemade Late.
2: Yeah, uh, talking about uh, how to put your own lathe together, designing it and uh, putting it together. It's uh, I think we're just under 800 members.
0: Yeah, Very cool, it's a very cool, there's always something cool going on in that page, so people need to check it out.
2: As a matter of fact, I was shocked, uh, one of the members contacted me, I will post stuff on there from eBay, and Mm -hmm. they ended up designing their machine based on some of the stuff that I put up there, so, I know that it's helping some people.
0: Cool, yeah, no, very cool, and of course, check out his um, YouTube YouTube channel, because there's always a new video at least once a week, if not more often, too. Yep. So... Um, yeah Uh, and for me you can find me at City Aperture on Twitter and on Facebook and of course please check out our Facebook page for a made podcast as well so that's that's everything so thanks so much for listening see you next time
1: bye bye